What you are about to hear is a live podcast that Gemma and I created a couple weeks ago. You'll hear questions submitted by listeners, and some are asked by listeners who were tuning in live. The audio is not perfect. Recording a conversation live on the air was new to both of us. If you have questions you'd like Gemma and I to discuss, feel free to email them to me at shane at itsfoulplay.com or go to our website, itsfoulplay.com. For anyone who is joining us and you've never listened to Foul Play with Gemma and I, I'm Shane Waters and this is Gemma Hoskins. I am one of the hosts for Foul Play and the Hometown History Podcast and Gemma. Uh, joins me in the podcast for season two of Foul Play, where we talk about Sister Kathy's murder. And Gemma, people will know you from Netflix's The Keepers. Oh, of course. Hi, I that. Teddy, That's okay. He's just telling me somebody's outside. Before I start asking you questions, Gemma, it looks like uh-huh. there are just some yeah. comments that have come through. So let's play them. You want to do the honor of pushing the button? Oh, comments. They're probably telling me to shut up. Right? Hey, you, you two. It's really fun. This is a great idea. It's Lucia Buenarica or Lucy Goodrich. I love this. Love y'all. Hi, Lucy. Well, can she nice. hear us? Can she hear us? Yes, yeah, she I'm can. Saying hi, to yeah. hi, Lucy. Of I, course. I'm going to practice saying her last name because I've read it many times. I wonder where she is. <laughs> So these are all questions that people have just asked online. As you know, we often get asked similar questions multiple times. So some of them we've already discussed, but at least you're able to, to answer them and set the record straight. Okay. Uh, someone has asked if we're aware of which states do not have a statute of limitations for child sex abuse. I'm assuming they mean no statute of limitations at all. You know Correct. what? I don't know. But we could try and ask Abby and then post it because Abby keeps track of all this legislation all over the country. And she also keeps track of like the number of credibly accused priests. She's very data driven. And that would be an Abby question. And right now, I don't know. Do we know who asked that? I don't. I do know that last time. Yeah, last time we talked about this a little bit. But you had mentioned that Maryland is a, you know, if you're an adult and you're aware of the abuse, you have to report it. Right. Mandatory reporting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But for Maryland, isn't there an exception for priests? For the statute of limitations or for reporting? To report. Oh, okay. We're we're talking about two different things though, right? Yes. Statute of limitations and reporting abuse. Okay, the way I understand it right now, if that a priest confides in another priest in a confessional and says, I sexually assaulted, you know, such and such a person, whether it was a child or not, it's wrong, then I think that priest that's hearing the confession does not have to report it, I think. But somebody can check on that because I'll be honest with you, Shane. I do not keep up with like the nuts and bolts of legislation very well at all. Mm-hmm. Teresa knows if Teresa's on here tonight, Teresa, call in if you know, because you could help us with that. Teresa Lancaster is an attorney and she and Abby and Jean and Lil and Gloria, they have all gone like to Annapolis to advocate 
for eliminating the statute of limitations, which it's in the Senate right now. And somebody who works for the local government told me they thought it might pass. So that would be awesome. But I don't that would know. That would be awesome. The, yeah. Yeah. I don't know all the ins and outs of the law. So if and when that happens, let's get somebody on who is either a delegate or maybe C.T. Wilson would do an interview with us and or, you know, somebody who's been doing this down in Annapolis and tell us what it means in language that everybody can understand. Can you just give me a one liner, basically, on what The Keepers is on Netflix? A one liner. Gemma has never given a one liner (laughs) on anything. I knew you were going to say that. I haven't. All right. If you haven't seen The Keepers, I'm trying to do this in one sentence. If you haven't seen The Keepers, it is the story of the murder of my teacher, Sister Catherine Sesnick, in 1969 after she left Archbishop Keogh. And we believe that she was killed because she was aware that the chaplain, Joseph Maskell, he was a priest was sexually abusing girls in the school building and in other places around Baltimore. And the case has never been solved. And she died because of it. Does that do it? Yeah, that was a perfect summary. We have to keep that one so I can write it down and use it. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully we'll remember it. Another question that we get asked a lot, I know that I ask you this question almost every time we have question and answer, but this is specifically about the necklace. They were wanting to know if it was definitely related to Sister Kathy. All right. As far as I know, it is not. It was a big deal in the movie. You know, we took it to a jeweler, a gemologist, because we thought perhaps that Edgar Davidson stole it from Kathy in November and gave it to his wife as a Christmas present that year. And she told us that it was not typical at all of what he would give her and that it wasn't the color of a birthstone. So the necklace has been like sort of this sort of piece of evidence, you know, like in the game of Clue, you're not sure what is or what isn't. And so Debbie Yoon, who was Edgar's niece, was so very kind enough to want to return it to Kathy's family. And she did. And Marilyn, Kathy's sister, had it in her possession for a while. But at some point, both Kathy's family and the police, the detectives that were handling the case, came to an agreement that it was not bought. There was no purchase made of that necklace. And we started seeing the same necklace. We kind of looked around on the Internet and saw the same necklace is available very inexpensively still to this day in different stones so that like somebody sent a picture in and said, my boyfriend gave me this for Valentine's Day. Or somebody said, you know, my mom gave this to me when I graduated from such a place. So it was not meant as a wedding gift. We don't know what the little curls on it are unless they're just like a bow above the bell. And so Marilyn Radikovic, who's Kathy's sister, returned it to the police so that they could return it to Debbie's family. And right now, I really don't know where it is, but it's not to our knowledge. And from both the police and Kathy's family, I've been told that it is not connected to her disappearance or murder. 
the officer that was handling the cold case, Robin Teal, who's retiring this year, by the way, she told me that they knew Edgar was a petty thief and that he probably stole it, maybe from one of the girls he tried to pick up or, you know, from somebody that he was, I don't know, doing something bad to. I don't know. But it seems like she was pretty sure that it was not meant to be for Marilyn. We do also know, and this is not in the missing person report, there's some page mis- pages missing, but we do know that Kathy did visit the bridal registry in the heck company and inquire about how to open up a bridal registry, you know, since her sister was going to get married. So we don't have the records of that, though, or the person she spoke to, because that's one of the missing pages in the Maryland Public Information Act request that we submitted. And the next question, which I thought was a really good one, they wanted to know if you could share some of your memories, like personal memories of Kathy or interactions. Oh, absolutely. Well, one of the best memories I have of her was when I was in the drama club and you'd be in the club, but then you would have to have an audition for a show. And she did a lot of musicals. So the first time I auditioned, I was given a piece to read from some Greek play, which meant nothing to me. And so, you know, we gave this little piece of paper. We were allowed to read it, but we were supposed to, you know, do it with expression and emphasis and all. So you have your little paper. It was like American Idol, but not with music. And she was sitting about maybe eight rows back in the auditorium with nobody else there. And everybody who was trying out was like sitting way in the back. And so I got up there and I read this piece. It was something about Helen of Troy. And when I finished, she said, do it again. But I want you to really mean it. And I was like, shit, I do mean it. I want this part, you know? So I got up and did it again. And then she told me to do something that I always had my students do in the classroom. She said, I want you to pretend I'm holding a trash can. And I want you to throw your voice into the trash can. And so I just pictured her sitting there with like a big old school trash can and like aimed my voice and it works. So a lot of times kids do not speak loud enough when they're in front of the class. So I always like took the trash can and I moved it like halfway back in the room. And I said, now I want you to throw your voice in the trash can. And they thought it was fun and it worked. It made them speak louder. So then I got to be in the musical. That was one. Another memory I have, and I've told this one in my book, is I remember that in Kathy's classroom, we were in rows. I think there were probably six rows, maybe six chairs in each row. And like going back from the front of the room. And she was handing out test papers that we had taken on the Friday before. And they were all in her arm, all stapled together. And she put mine on my desk face down. I was like, oh, this isn't good. I was smart. My parents expected me to bring home good work. They didn't punish me, but I had high expectations of myself. So I looked at me, like like kind of raised an eyebrow, which I never have been able to do. I was like, oh my God, my dad's not going to like this. So I like peeked the corner. I like picked the corner of it up and sort of peeked. Like that was going to make it any easier, right? And it was an A and she just like started laughing and went, kept going. You know, she was like funny and fun and beautiful. 
detective came and knocked on the door. And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Another thing she always did, which as a teacher I tried to remember to do, if she were writing comments on our paper, she would use our name in the comment. Not like, Gemma, good job. But it would be like, I'm really impressed, comma, Gemma, comma, with your interpretation of the raft in Huckleberry Finn. It made me think about another book I think you'd like, blah, blah, blah. So for a student to get back a comment like that, what would it tell you? It would tell you she read what you wrote, she wants you to read something else, and she appreciates what you did. And putting your name in the middle of the sentence, Shane, always makes the other person feel important. Did I just make you feel important because I used your name in there, Shane? Yes, you did, Gemma. No, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's a it really makes it nice personal. Way. Yes. So that's two things that I remember. I have all good memories of her until she was no longer there. And then everything was sad. What parts of her teaching style did you pick up? Oh, my goodness. I watched everything she did. Because I remember thinking, why do I love being here and not like in science? Well, I didn't like science that much, but why don't I like being in other classes the way I like being in here? The trick or the secret is that she facilitated learning. She didn't get up and tell us things. She encouraged us to find the answers. So, for example, if she said, what does the raft symbolize in Huckleberry Finn? And then you would say, well, I think it symbolizes independence, running away, escaping from something. And she would say, well, tell me why you're saying that. Why do you believe that? Or find something in the book that made you feel that way. 
So she's bringing the learning out. It actually has a name. It's called constructivism, where she helps the learner construct their meaning from what they're reading or doing or, you know, math or whatever, and then encourages you to build on that. It's also part of what's called the Socratic method, because Socrates used to sit in the middle of his students and ask them questions. And the discussion would actually be turned over to the students and the teacher becomes a student learning with the others. So, you know, she often encouraged us to agree and disagree with each other and to talk back and forth about it. And she would just kind of ease her way out. But those are things that teachers learn how to do now. And when they're learning to be a good teacher, she just did it naturally. Always something that was hard, challenging, but that we wanted to do because of the way she presented it. Did your relationship with Sister Kathy evolve from student to friend? Well, I do remember when after she left at the end of my junior year and I was not in her class that year. I had her for drama club for two years and I had her as my English teacher for two years. At that time, you know, being, quote, friends with teachers, it wasn't unusual but it wasn't always typical. So for me, I do remember going to visit Kathy and Sister Russell at their apartment in the summer after our junior year before school started. And we took a pizza over. I've told people this before. My friend and I took a pizza over and we put it on the table and we realized it was upside down. So when we opened it, all the pizza was on the lid. And Kathy just said, we just get forks, we can eat it off the lid. So if you will call that friendship, yes. But I was not as close to her as many of the girls, you know, who may have been in drama club for four years. Or I know some friends went on a retreat with her to New York and one of the girls' moms let Kathy borrow the car to take everybody to the retreat. I didn't do those kinds of things with her. But the weekends that we had practices for our shows, you know, we weren't in our uniforms. We were there in jeans and sweatshirts. And so that was a much more comfortable, casual kind of relationship. But it was always appropriate, but it was always, she made every one of us feel like we were special, you know, because we are, we each are special in our own way. And I always felt like I wanted to make my students feel that way. So, yeah. I guess that answered your question. Yeah. With you feeling so close to Sister Kathy in terms of having that relationship with her during the investigation for the Keepers and since then, even through the podcast and talking to people, Uh when you learn details of her murder, how do you take that? Is it hard to hear? Well, it was something I had to learn how to do. And Kathy's family, her brother-in-law, Marilyn's husband, gave me a copy of Kathy's autopsy and I didn't read it for a long time because I wasn't sure I wanted to read it because in my mind, she was like this kind of special mentor person that just shared herself with all of us. And then to think that somebody killed her and the state of her body was not that beautiful Kathy that we all knew. 
I had to work my way up to it. So I did look at it. The first time I read it, I cried. I didn't understand a lot of the science words, but the part I did understand was really hard for me to read. And I just kind of let my emotions out. And then I waited and then I went back this time with a dictionary and I looked up every word I didn't understand. You know, there were a lot of technical medical words. And Shane, I don't know if everybody listening knows that you're now a coroner. It would be like clear as a bell to you because you're used to reading and writing this stuff now, right? Well, I also wanted to mention that when we're doing podcasts and we're talking about details like that, like, for example, when we talk to the hunter, he's telling us, you know, just his memories. He didn't know Kathy personally. But I know when we're hearing those details, oftentimes, especially after the interview, I know that we have to walk away from the situation to kind of regroup. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we also do that when we're speaking with survivors. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's the living people that make me the saddest. I don't want them to feel bad for doing that because they're still carrying this burden and they're going to have it all their lives. Now, if I answer questions about the autopsy, and I have been doing that, I met with a group of 10 forensic science students by Zoom in another state, and they go to a virtual school, and all of their questions were based on forensics. And I told their teacher I was not going to give her a copy of the autopsy. There's something in me. I will never do that because it was not given to me with the thought of copying it and giving it to people. Now, somehow, Alan Horn also got a copy of it and made many copies. I don't know how he got it because he didn't get it from me, but he gave them to many people, handing them out like bingo cards. And I won't do that. I will answer questions or I'll look something up for somebody, but I'm not going to give them because I know what happens. It finds itself all over the Internet. People misunderstand. Trolls get mad or trolls say what Gemma said, and that's not what it says here. I'm not going to give people that ammunition anymore. You know, also the same thing happened when we talked to Dr. Werner Spitz, because he went into a lot of detail about her injuries. And I was excited and happy to talk to him because I'm like such so starstruck. I mean, Shane, I'm your groupie. But anyway, (laughs) I was just so awed even though he mixed it up with a different case, I just was hanging on every word. But then afterwards I thought, no, this was my teacher and her body had been out in the elements for two months. And it also makes me think I need to like suck it up because poor Jean was taken to see Kathy a few weeks after she was killed. And she carries that vision around with her. The Maleckis, they had to identify Joyce the day she was murdered, and they have that inside. So, you know, it's not so bad for me, but it is very sad when you think about this person that you loved and respected and who helped you develop into who you are was treated that way. Another really good question, I thought, was someone wanted to know what recording podcasts together is like you can answer that what is it like it's well i mean as whenever we're talking to someone for some reason normally people get a little nervous to to hear the word recording but i mm-hmm. think that one really good thing is we're both pretty good friends too so we're uh-huh. we do a really good job i think at making people feel comfortable 
Uh-huh. And I just having too. a discussion, like mm-hmm. just friends chatting. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think that is really effective, Shane, is that you always tell them, and I usually remind you at the beginning to explain to them how this is going to work. And then you tell them that when we're finished, you're going to you know, take out Teddy barking or Gemma <laughs> sneezing or, you know, you sniffing or whatever. And you're going to have the person that we interviewed listen to the whole thing. And then it's up to them. It's their show. It's not our show. It's theirs. Then they can take out or add something. And then I think with Jean, she wanted to listen to it several times. And I was really glad. And then you take what changes they want to make or if none. And then, you know, you put the music and all to it. I will say I'm probably a little bit more worried about having like a roadmap before we start. So if I write the questions and send them to you, I'm usually the one that says, okay, do you want to start or do I? Who's going to go first? (laughs) And you're a little bit more, because you do it all the time. You do this like many times a week, I think. And I don't. And so I'm like being the teacher. And (laughs) you're more, not unorganized, but you can do this in your sleep. And so I think we've learned to like wait and have the other, like let the other persons like kind of alternate questions. The other thing I've had to learn to do is not to say, oh yeah, or because listeners have given me feedback about that. I've never done radio before. And that's what a podcast is like an old time radio show. It's exactly what it is before people had TVs. So I'm better when the, I'll write the questions and get the, you know, I'll find the person and then you're the one that says, okay, let's put it together like this. And then when we're actually talking to them, I think we do a good job alternating. And I'm going to tell everybody, we text back and forth in the middle of some interviews, like the one with Sean Kane. And I'll be texting you saying like, asking this, asking that. So it's been more of a learning experience for me than it has for you, I think, because you've been doing it longer. Yeah, I think that our team, the teamwork that we have, we definitely play off each other's strengths. It's nice that I'm a little bit more tech savvy when it comes to recording podcasts and producing. <laughs> you think? Oh, come on, Shane. <laughs> They're telling me, yeah, I'm, just push that arrow. And I'm like, what arrow? What's he talking about? <laughs> hey, we always get there, though, don't we? I know, we do. Um, and I think we, when, you, when you came to visit and we did a couple here, I think physically being around you and Alicia and going to see where things happened with you and a lot of people that were involved, that was a fascinating day, has made the podcast we did after that better because we have a, a better feel for the each other's like demeanor and I don't know, yeah, personality. Yeah, up until then, it was all just remote, but mm-hmm. we spent, what, what, was that a week? You came you and visited me for a week, yeah. Yeah. It was fun. I know. It was. It was a lot of fun. You had mentioned how we let people who we interview pre-listen to episodes and we'll remove things. But I think the reason we started doing that was especially for when we're talking to survivors. It's their story. And sometimes mm-hmm. when you're talking to us, like when it's just us two and them, they might be a little bit more open to share things. But I want to make sure that before we share it publicly... Mm-hmm that they're okay with it. I think that the people yeah. we interviewed have appreciated that. And I think a few of them, we actually just had a, conver- a three-way conversation on the phone 
before we recorded anything, you know, because yeah. they need to vet us. They need to, oh, like, yeah. does this feel right? You know, I think yeah. the listener that was the expert in social work that shared with us how to talk to your children about abuse, you know, she was not part of the keepers, but she had experience and wisdom to share. And I think we talked to her on the phone before we actually interviewed her. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Uh-huh. Yep. Another question was, is the memorial plaque for Sister Kathy that people saw in the end of episode seven still on the tree? Yes, it is. And it's private property. I just posted a picture of it, actually, because people want to know where it is. You can see it. Anybody that's listening, if they want to you know, send me a message asking me how they can see it without going on private property, I can explain that as it wouldn't be helpful for me to explain it now, but it is private property. And there is a house adjacent to that wooded area. And the first time we went there, those people came out. And so I went over and talked to them. And I don't think they were very happy about us being there because they knew nothing about the story. They were way younger. And Jessica, the producer, was with me and John Benham. And they were like, you go talk to him, Gemma. (laughs) (laughs) I'll go talk to him. So I went up and talked to him, Jack. I knew Jess and John were like, come on, Gemma. That's enough talking to those people. Let's go. (laughs) So they did let us walk on their property and take pictures and film. But I know that as soon as the keepers came out, that road, which is not a through road, it stops in a big parking lot of a distillery and railroad tracks became like a looky-loo kind of place, you know, like the tour of the uh, movie stars' homes or something. And it's a very narrow road. You were there and people would cruise down real slow, like a parade for days. And then they'd have to turn around in the distillery parking lot, drive back up again. They all wanted to stop and take pictures. And so, yeah, that's happened a lot. But now there is a no trespassing sign close to the road. And up by the, listen to me saying road, like such a Baltimore <laughs> accent, close to the road and up by the tree itself. But you can see it from the street. You don't have to get out and walk anywhere. If you know where you're looking, you can see it. Yeah, we saw it when we were there. Yeah. Just from the road. Mm-hmm. Someone else wanted to know if anyone has ever figured out what Kathy's letter to her sister said. Not a word. Nothing. So many theories. I mean, we don't even know where the letter is. We have no idea what it said. Now, and people get confused with that letter and the one that she supposedly wrote to Jerry Koo. It's two different letters, right? The one that you're talking about is the one that her sister Marilyn received, like, I don't know, five or six days after Kathy disappeared. And Marilyn kicks herself, I'm sure, every day. Why didn't she open it? But she was so excited that she thought Kathy was alive. She called her dad and he worked for the post office and he said, do not open it. I'm sending somebody to get it. So somebody picked it up. And in the back of my book, here, I'll plug it. Keeping on is the missing person report. And in that report, it's a little confusing because there's one report that talks about Mr. Sesnick coming and bringing an envelope and turning it over to the police. And it doesn't say anything about the contents. And then later in the same report, it talks about the letter being turned over to the cops. So 
I don't know. Now, we know that it was entered as evidence, but I don't know if the envelope was entered, if the letter was entered, but it's not there anymore. And the police have a system. People saw this in the keepers and might have been confused when Gary Child, the detective, was interviewed by our filmmakers. They asked about the letter and you could hear a voice off screen. Rob, that was Robin, who didn't want to be in the interview, said, or didn't want to be filmed, said, it's been entered into BEAST, B-E-A-S-T. And BEAST is an evidence tracking system. So it had a number, it was entered in, and it's not there anymore. So mm. I think it would be interesting to hear what people think the letter was about. Do you have an opinion about that, Shane? What do you think it was in it? I'm not really sure. You have, you have to refresh my, my memory on this, but has, did she share with her sister at that point that she was leaving the convent? She had done that already because she let people know that at the end of the spring term at Keogh. And she did a, like a, a letter that she made copies of. Shane, do you even know what a mimeograph machine is? No, I don't think okay. so. Well, it's, an, it's an old time copy machine and you have to like turn a big handle. I'll have to find a picture of it for you <laughs> and send it to you. And so she made copies of that and she sent them to a lot of people. One of our friends, Bruce, probably who's listening tonight, he was sent a copy because she was friends with him. And I have a copy of it. And it explains what they're doing and why they're doing it. And that they felt like they could make more of an impact on young people and their education by teaching outside of like the protection of, listen to that word, protection, right? Outside of Catholic school. So, you know, she sent that letter in the spring of 69. This letter was received by Marilyn after Kathy disappeared. But we don't know when it was mailed. Do you have an opinion about and Marilyn told me it was thick. It wasn't like a greeting card, you know, like a colored envelope or something. She said it was well, definitely a letter. I'm also curious how often she wrote her. Like was that a thing? Like did she just write her letters randomly? I have no idea. I never thought to ask. And the only reason I asked is because if she did and that might give us an idea of what type of uh -huh. situations she would write uh -huh. letters to. But if she doesn't normally write letters, then that would mean to me that it's something significant. <clears throat> me too. I yeah. never, you know, and that, that's interesting. I never thought about to ask how many, how often Kathy wrote to her. I mean, I'm assuming she did because Marilyn was in nursing school and Kathy was in Baltimore. I don't know. I mean, I think the most logical conclusion, if she didn't normally write to her, might be that she may have said to Russell, could you mail this if something happens to me? Especially after the two men, the two priests came into the apartment the night before. And I think that is significant about what happened the next day. Yeah. Now, when they left, apparently... Neither Kathy or Russ was upset enough to not go to school the next day. You know, if somebody came bursting in here and threatened me to, you know, keep my mouth shut or they were going to kill me, I don't know. I don't know what I would do the next day. But our friend from Western High School, Juliana Bertaldi, who had Kathy that year, spoke to her that day. She said Kathy seemed fine. 
And, but again, Kathy was into drama. So she would be a good actress trying to look fine for her students, you know? I'm not saying she was a drama queen. I'm saying if she had to pretend she was okay, she knew how to do it. But I kind of, and then I thought, well, I wonder if Russell wrote one too. If after those priests left, they both said, let's write letters to somebody in our family. And if something happens to either one of us, the other one will mail it. Like that would kind of make sense to me if they were both afraid. And maybe they wrote down everything that happened and then, you know, sealed it and stamped it and said, if something happens to me, send this to my sister. If something happens to me, send this to my uncle. But we will never know. We will never know. I'll ask this question, but it'll be the last one of the more in this. But do you think that Russell was really scared? Do you think that's why she kind of kept quiet? Mm-hmm. I think she was terrified, terrified. But she also was very quiet. Kathy was more outgoing, more gregarious, you know, more talkative. Russ was, oh my God, she was such a sweetie. She made me understand algebra without making me feel like an idiot. And she was very pretty, sweet. I don't believe she did anything wrong. I really don't. People like to talk about her. She's dead. It's easy to talk about people that are dead. People that like me now are going to be real mean about me when I die. So Shane, you better not let that happen. Anyway, so I'm not dying, everybody. I'm just saying, you know, I've thought about it. But I think she was threatened all her life. I think whoever it was that hurt Kathy kept reminding her that they could hurt her too. And I think that's what happened. I'm surprised she didn't move to another state and change her name. But maybe that would be more obvious than, you know, staying around and keeping her name. When The Keepers was being made, the filmmakers wanted to interview her husband. And he specifically asked for everybody to please leave him alone and his kids. He has two sons grown. And everybody respected that. So. I don't know what he knows. He claimed at the beginning he didn't know anything. And uh, Russell was good friends with our buddy Chris Santafonte and said, you know, Chris tried to get her to talk about it many times because they knew each other when they lived in Carroll County. Chris was their real estate agent. And Russell said to her, I have a different life now. I'm not going back there. But Russ would definitely, like, there are some people who can wrap something up inside them so that. They are not thinking about it and they are turning a corner. But that doesn't mean it's not like festering in there somewhere. And I really believe in holistic health, not that we're into like, what do we believe spiritually? But I think that she died of melanoma at a young age, like in her 50s. And like Jean's husband died of esophageal cancer, you know, when he was young. And it often has to do with what's going on in your life. Like when Gene talks about everything he had to swallow, well, it was a lot of hard stuff and your body turns on itself. For Russ, it could be that she just couldn't hold it in anymore and she developed melanoma, which sounds almost trite, but it does happen. It happens that way. Look at how many people that have high stress jobs that die of a heart attack. You know, our bodies and our minds are all connected. So I think that she was threatened all her life. And I think that she had to make a decision. People criticize her. But Shane, if you had to make a decision between 
saving yourself and your family or telling the truth, what would you pick? Well, I think that the question would have to go a little bit more beyond that because at the time, Russell was a woman mm-hmm. <laughs> in a man's world, you know? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. And she was yeah. up against Catholic priests. So, yeah. I mean, if I put myself in that situation, there's no way that I would feel comfortable. They just mm-hmm. killed my best friend. Right. Like, what would stop them from killing me or exactly. anyone that I care about? But I think even as she got older, I think she had to make the decision, do I protect my husband and my sons and myself, or do I tell the truth? I would protect my family because, you know, yeah. Something you just said made me think of, oh, being a woman in a man's world. People criticize her for calling Jerry Coob, but we know the cops were involved in the abuse, and we know that Kathy and Russ knew about the abuse, and so what is she going to do? Call the people that are hurting, her, that probably just killed her, you know, her best friend? Right. I don't think so. I think it made sense to me. She called Sharon and then she calls Jerry because who else is going to help them? Yeah, that yeah. whole thing is very hard to understand. But anyway. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, that looks like it's it. Okay. I, I think you can go enjoy your okay, my you know, rewarding yourself. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Gemma. Well, thank you for, okay. for this time. Thanks, Shane. All right. Take care, Han. Bye, everybody.